Exodus 21, verses 1 through 6 is our text today. These are the ordinances that you must set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years. Then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife of her children belong to her master and the man must leave alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife and my children, I do not want to leave as a free man. His master is to bring him to the judges and then bring him to the door or doorpost. His master must pierce his ear with an awl and he will serve his master for life. Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. When a marriage turns sour, we do not speak against marriage as a whole. We speak against that particular abuse of marriage. We teach husbands and wives how to properly walk out their roles. A bad marriage does not mean marriage itself is bad. Well, according to Yahweh, a bad master-to-slave relationship does not mean that slavery itself is bad. Yahweh never speaks against the practice. He does condemn its abuse, but in doing so, he explains how to properly go about it, showing that it's a lawful practice. It is difficult to, to get modern people to see this. I understand how somebody that does not believe in the Bible or believe in Yahweh's law refuses to see this. I get that. But I'm talking about modern Bible believers. Now, I knew... In my first lesson on Exodus 21, 1 through 6, that I titled, Is Slavery Always Bad? I knew I would get some kickback, and I have, but the kickback that I've gotten does not stem from scriptural exegesis of this text. The kickback stems from humans thinking we can be stricter than the Almighty, and that we have to apologize for something the Almighty allowed in His law. Instead, what we should do is not kick back, but trust that the law of Yahweh is perfect and trust in Yahweh with all of our heart and lean not into our own understanding. Acknowledge him in all our ways and he shall direct our paths. I don't want anybody else directing my path other than almighty Yahweh. We've got to trust in him. Trust in him. We do not have to apologize for Yahweh. If he allows something, it's allowed. It must be practiced properly, yes, but we cannot condemn something that Yahweh does not condemn. Else we'll be guilty of taking away from his instructions and will violate Deuteronomy 4 verse 2. I've had some people say that in Exodus 21, it's better to say indentured servant or bond servant instead of slave. Now, I think either of those are fine. If you want to translate the Hebrew word ebed, we'll talk about that in a second, as indentured servant or bond servant, I think that's fine, but at the same time, I do not think that the word slave is a bad word in and of itself, and I do not think that the word slave is a bad translation of the Hebrew word ebed. Several major scholarly translations, we're talking about heavy hitters right here, New American Standard, New Revised Standard, Holman Christian Standard, Lexham English Bible and English Standard Version, all translate the word ebed as slave in Exodus 21 verse 2. So I have those backing me. I think what happens is we have heard of and we have read of the abuse of slavery practiced in America and European history. 
And it's hard to detach that abuse from the word itself. So please realize when I use the word slave, servant or slavery or servanthood, I am not okaying the stealing of a person and the selling of that person to somebody who will abuse them. That's not what these messages are about. I'm not okaying that. The law of Yahweh actually condemns that. We'll see that as we go through Exodus 21. When I use the word slave or slavery, I'm trying my best to train your mind to think biblically. Everybody wants you to think like them in the world. And I'm telling you, get away from that and start thinking like Yahweh thinks. Train your mind to think like the Creator. When you see slave or servantry in the Scriptures, think scripturally, not worldly. So, you have to stop letting the world control how you think. Take your cue from Holy Scripture. Exodus 21 verse 2 again reads, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years. Then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. This section here in Exodus is specifically about the Hebrew manservant. It is not about a female. It is about a man who is a servant to his master. The Hebrew part is specified at the beginning of the verse. And this shows that Hebrews had servants or slaves among themselves. We know that a man or a male is in view here because of the immediate context. Verses 2 through 6 that we opened up with show that this servant can acquire or bring in a wife. So we know it's a man being talked about here. Also, this section is contrasted with verses 7 through 11 that is about the Hebrew maidservant. A very controversial text that we'll get to soon, but at a future date. The word slave here is the Hebrew word ebed. It is used about 800 times in the Hebrew Bible. All Hebrew lexicons that I'm aware of that I've looked at give the words servant or slave as the primary definition of ebed. The meaning is simply that you have one person in authority and another person who is subject to that first person in authority. The secondary person is the servant or the slave and it serves, he or she serves, in this case he serves the master. The person in authority in this context is referred to as the master in verses 4 through 6, six different times. It is the Hebrew word Adon. You should be familiar with that. It is the base word for the word Adonai. Adonai is a Pretty technical term used of Yahweh the Most High. The base word of that, Adon, is often used of human superiors. Here it is used of the master of this Hebrew slave. Modern examples of a servant might range from a waiter at a restaurant to a hired hand on a farm. At a restaurant, you pay for food and service. So there's payment, but you sit down, somebody takes your order, somebody makes your food, somebody brings you your food, somebody cleans up after you're done. So in that case, you have a server or a servant. A bit stronger example would be a hired hand on a farm. One man, the owner or the master of the farm, may provide room, food, and pay. And the worker who is the servant who serves the master or the owner provides know-how and labor and work. Now, we now call this an employer-to-employee relationship, but it is still similar to the master-to-servant relationship in this text. Let's look at the concept of buying a servant. Why would a person buy a Hebrew slave? One reason, and I think the primary reason, was as a means of helping someone who was poor or who was debt-ridden. In Hebrew culture, 
Slavery was a welfare system that helped a man in need rise from poverty to financial stability. The poor Hebrew would sell himself to a more wealthy Hebrew and he would enter into as much as a six-year contract with his Hebrew master. Leviticus 25 verse 39a speaks to this by saying, If your brother among you becomes destitute and sells himself to you. So you have a fellow Hebrew who is in poverty. He is needing a way out. And the system of slavery regulated by Yahweh was a system whereby a poor person could rise up from his poverty. Catch this. This is important. If you can remember one thing. The slavery system of Yahweh brought more of an equality among the Hebrews than an inequality. Let me say that again. The slavery system that Yahweh appointed in his Torah brought more of an equality among the Hebrews than an inequality. There was still a master and a slave, but the poor person who became a slave, guess what? Did not remain poor while he served his master because the master provided for him all the basic necessities of life in return for his labor. A man may also be bought as a slave if he had stolen something and he had no wealth, no way to make restitution and he needed to work his restitution off. We see this in Exodus 22 verse 3b where it says a thief must make full restitution, meaning payback. If he is unable, he is to be sold because of his theft. Theft in ancient Israel was not a capital crime, meaning that death was not its punishment. There were crimes in Israel, like breaking the Sabbath, committing adultery, committing murder. If you were caught um, under the eyewitnesses, two or three or more eyewitnesses, then you could be put to death for your sin slash crime. Theft was not like that. It was a payback, a restitution. You would pay back at least double, sometimes more. That was the punishment. Now, let me make a caveat here. We're not talking about armed robbery where a thief has a desire to not just steal something but to harm somebody. That's different. We'll get to that later on in Exodus. What we're talking about here is what we might today call petty theft or burglary. That was not punishable by death. It was punished by restitution. So, three reasons for when you buy a Hebrew slave, one, poverty, poor, debt-ridden, or theft. At the end of verse 2, we see that the servant can choose to be released after six years of service. And at such time that the slave has served the master lawfully, he does not owe the master anything at his release. He is to leave without payment, leave owing nothing. A parallel text to this in Deuteronomy 15 actually tells us that if a slave, a Hebrew slave, manservant, chose to be released on the seventh year, the master was to give him a financial gift when he left. Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15 and verse 18. If your fellow Hebrew, a man or woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, you must set him free in the seventh year. When you set him free, do not send him away empty-handed. Give generously to him from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. You are to give him whatever Yahweh your mighty one has blessed you with. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your mighty one redeemed you. That is why I'm giving you this command today. Verse 18, do not regard it as a hardship when you set him free, because he worked for you six years, worth twice the wages of a hired worker. 
then Yahweh, your mighty one, will bless you in everything you do. This again shows the beautiful relationship between a good master and an obedient Hebrew manservant. Let's move on to Exodus 21, 3 through 4. Verse 3, if he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. Verse 4, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to her master and the man must leave alone. So the leaving here is done on the seventh year and the first part of this we understand pretty easily. If he's bought by the master while he's single, then he leaves single. If he's bought while married, his wife comes along with him during his service, then he leaves with his wife. Now, those verses are pretty clear, easy to understand. We might not balk, but we balk at verse 4 because it says if his master gives him a wife while he is serving, whether it's from one of his daughters or one of the Hebrew maidservants, that when it comes time for the man to leave, the wife and the children that she bore to the Hebrew manservant are to stay with the master. Thus says the word of Yahweh. And we balk. That's archaic. That's primitive. That's outdated. You mean you, you mean you believe that, Brother Matthew? I believe it with all my heart. Because Yahweh said it. I trust in Him. Number one, trust in Yahweh. Don't lean to your own understanding. The judgments of Yahweh, which this is, the Mishpatim of Yahweh, are true and righteous altogether. It is not submitting to Yahweh's word when you only submit and obey when you agree with something the word says. That's not submission. So whether or not we understand the why behind Yahweh's instructions, we trust our Father in heaven. He knows best and has a good reason for commanding what he commands. Whether or not we know what he commands, we still obey. We might understand or might not understand at a later time. doesn't matter. We still obey. He's a good, good father. He knows what's best for us. Like the old TV show, see, a father knows best. Right? In this case, that is true. Now, let me explain it to you, though. Give you a little bit of understanding, Hebraically. We forget that in Hebrew culture, it was required for a man to prove he could provide for his wife-to-be. A father did not give away his daughter to somebody that had not proven that they could provide for his daughter, financially, materially. Oftentimes, this was done with the dowry that was given to the girl's father, that a good father would then give back once he saw that the son-in-law was giving him that in good faith. Hebrew culture, the husband was to be the provider, primarily, primarily. Now, I'm familiar with the uh, last part of Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman is industrious. There's nothing wrong with that. Talking about the primary provider in Hebrew culture was the husband. The husband acquired the food, the wife prepared the food. The husband acquired the fabric or material, the wife made clothing out of that fabric or material. The husband provided the home, the wife was the keeper or the caretaker of that home. And this is how it has been throughout most of history. And definitely in Hebrew culture. Families were overseen by a good holy man, patriarch of Yahweh, who would love and take care of his family. I believe the Bible teaches patriarchy. Done properly, but I believe it teaches patriarchy. That the husband and the father is the head of the home. So when this Hebrew man became a servant, he had just about nothing. He may have had some old tattered clothing or a tunic on his back, and that was it. When he was given a wife, catch this, he's serving the master. When the master gives him a wife and she bears children, that servant 
does not have to prove to a father that he could provide for a woman. Why? Because he himself was being provided for by the master. You catch that? It's very important. Now, I don't want to go off on too much of a rabbit trail here, but as I was making my notes one morning this past week, I thought I need to put a little bit in here about parental honor because it was jumping off the letters of the law at me. I know in our culture we're getting away from this idea of a girl, a young lady, being under her father's authority until she is married. But it is a bad getting away from, not a good getting away from. Thankfully, some young men still have a proper upbringing where they go to a young woman's father and ask for her hand in marriage. That is a very biblical concept. We still see this at some weddings, not all, but at some weddings where it is said, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the father of the bride says, I do, or her mother and I. Some people still recognize parental authority, that the fifth commandment is to be obeyed, which says, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long in the land that Yahweh thy Elohim giveth thee. It's the first commandment, Paul says in Ephesians 6, with a promise. And Paul is quoting Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, when he writes to the church at Ephesus or the churches in Asia there in Ephesians 6. Modern culture wants to say, no, I'm my own person. It doesn't matter what my parents say. Hebrew culture, which is Yahweh's way, says this. Your parents love you so much. They've been through all of this in their own lives. Yes, you are your own person. But listen to a good father and mother if they don't think a person is fit to be married to. That's the culture of Yahweh. And we need to get back to that where the world has gotten us off track. So back to Exodus 21. Because this Hebrew manservant came in with nothing and was given a wife while he himself was being provided for, Yahweh saw it better or fit for the woman and the children she bore to stay with the master. Why? So that their care would be guaranteed. It is Yahweh here looking out for the female and for the children born by the female. In this case, I must point out that the children here in the law are to stay with the mother, not the father. In most cases, not all, not all cases. Please don't anybody misquote me. In most cases, a mother is the better caretaker of children than the father. Now, I'm a father and I love my children. But I have to admit that Yahweh placed some attributes in Tisha that are not in me. <laughs> you asked them when they got hurt, did they go to daddy or did they go to mama? All of them would say, we went to mama. Daddy might get on to us if we got hurt. <laughs> we went to mama. Men and women are different. I know people try to say that they're not. And Brother Sandy brought up how that now we have somebody sitting on the highest court of the land that won't even define what a woman is when it's obvious I look out I see who's women I see who's men it's so obvious men and women are different and it's not just on the outside it is on the inside Yahweh made them different they complement one another you think of the beautiful colors here in our new sanctuary they're different but they match they complement that's men and women we're not the same but yet we match we complement hallelujah Mamas do things that daddies can't do. One time the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and he said, or he talked about a gentle mother who nurtures her children. He didn't say a gentle father who nurtures his children. 
We should be gentle. There's scriptures that say men should be gentle too. Yeshua described his heart one time in the whole in his whole ministry. That's recorded. One time he described his heart. Matthew eleven, twenty eight through thirty. He said, I'm gentle and lowly of heart. So Yeshua was a gentle man. I'm not saying we shouldn't be gentle. I'm just saying that men have masculine attributes. Most of the time we get angry easier. It was the men of Israel that would go to war, not the women. There's difference. Mothers are different. In this case, the children stay with their mother. But, and this is probably my favorite part of this law, but I can't help it because it's so precious. Look at verses 5 through 6. But, if the slave, the abed, declares, I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I don't want to leave as a free man. His master is to bring him to the judges and then bring him to the door or the doorpost. His master must pierce his ear with an awl and he will serve his master for life. Verse 5, brothers and sisters, shows us just how good the master-to-slave relationship could be. I tend to think this would have happened in most cases among the Hebrews. Especially when the manservant acquired a wife and had children by her while he was serving the Hebrew master. So the Ebed here, he loves not just his wife and children, but notice the first thing. He says, I love my master. I love my master. Us men need to get back to telling one another, I love you. I've told that to some men before and they can't say it back. Not a queer thing. It's not a gay thing. It's a Yahweh thing. I love you, Brother Rocket. I love you, Brother Sandy. Hallelujah. We got to get back to that. It's okay. We can show our emotion too. This service says, I love my master. I love you, my master. I love you. <laughs> I see the big smile on the master's face and the smile on the servant's face. And he does his work as unto the Lord. As Paul writes to the Colossians, whatsoever you do, do with all your might as unto the Adonai and not as unto men. I enjoy working for you. I appreciate all you've done for me. I love you, my master. I could picture them hugging one another. The Bible says, greet your brother with a holy kiss. I know some of y'all ain't ready for that. <laughs> I lay it on some of you anyhow. <laughs> brother Jerry laughs every time I give him a holy kiss on the beard. I believe scripturally it was given by the men of Israel on the beard. The beard was a prestigious thing among Israelite men. So I kissed brother Jerry on the beard and he just laughs and smiles. Sometimes he started to kiss me back. I like that. Peter says, greet your brother with a kiss of charity. You know what charity means? Love. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with it, brothers and sisters. It's scripture. It's scripture. So they hug each other. I like to picture it like that. The master has done well. He's provided for. He's taking care of the abed. The servant has done well. He's worked hard for six years. He's done his master a good job. But he doesn't want to leave in the seventh year. He's free to go, but he would rather stay. He's got it too good. He's done acquired a wife. He's got children by the wife. He's got a good master. He doesn't want to leave. I think I'll stay. So the master brings him to the judges. The Hebrew word behind the word judges here. Drum roll. Elohim. Some commentators say it should be better that the master brings him to God, well, God, Yahweh, Yahweh's up in heaven. The master isn't floating on a cloud up to heaven, taking the servant up to Yahweh. That's not what's happening here. You know what he's doing? He's taking him to the representative of Elohim. 
the judges of Israel, which can be called Elohim because they stand in place or in the stead of Elohim on the earth. And they pronounce Yahweh Elohim's judgments, his mishpatim to the people of Israel. So he brings him to the judges and they tell the judges, look, he served me for six years. He doesn't want to leave. He'd rather stay. And the judges then bring the Hebrew manservant to the door, I believe, of the master's house. Some people say they bring him to the door of the tabernacle or the temple. That's some commentators. I think it's better understood that they go back to the master's house where he's been working and they bring him to the master's door. It signifies the owner of that property. Okay, so they bring him to the doorpost and the master pierces the slave's ear with an awl. An awl is simply a piercing tool. And the purpose here was for an earring. Now, a lot of the women here know that if you get your ears pierced, but you stop wearing a ring in the hole, what happens? The hole closes up. Before long, you cannot even tell that it was pierced. So this was not just a hole made in a Hebrew manservant's ear, then left alone where it closed up and you couldn't tell. No, the hole was made to be a forever sign because an, an earring was put into the ear some people say in Hebrew commentaries, the right ear. The scripture doesn't say it could probably be either the right or the left because we're not told. But it was to be a forever sign. By forever sign, I mean to the death of the abed, to the death of the, of the servant. He would serve him for life. It was a sign of lifelong service. Now, some might say in fundamentalist Christianity that wearing an earring is queer, gay, or feminine. Not according to this text. Now, I probably upset some liberal Christians in this message when I'm talking about servanthood and slavery. So now I'm going to upset some fundamentalist Christians and say that there's nothing wrong with a man having his ear pierced. Exodus 21, verse 6. Some people say, well, piercing the ear and wearing an earring for a man is a sign of slavery. Well, yes, but is this a good sign or a bad sign? If you saw the Abed with his wife and his children walking behind the master out in town, one of the towns of Israel, and you saw that he was pierced on the ear, would you think, oh, what a terrible servant? Or would you think, there goes a man who loves his master, loves his wife, and loves his children. May Yahweh bless that man. That's what that sign of that earring would be. Now let me show you something from Psalm 46 and 8. Psalm 46 and 8. I'm going to read here from the King James Version. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Verse 8. I delight to do thy will, O my Elohim. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Now, I could teach a whole sermon on this psalm and it's quoted in Hebrews 10 in reference to Yeshua. But the context here is about keeping the Torah from the heart out of a desire, a want to. And not just because you have to, or not just saying, ah, it'll be all right if I sin, I'll offer a sacrifice, everything will be okay. No, Yahweh wants from the heart, from the mind. He wants you to serve Him that way. I want to focus on the word picture given here, my ears hast thou opened. Now, I don't know about you, but my ears are already open. I got a hole in each of them. <laughs> That's how I hear you. Now, some people think, well, it's speaking spiritually, Brother Matthew. It's opening your spiritual ears. My spiritual ears thou open. And that's a good point. I don't think that's the original intention of the text here, though. The more literal rendering here is found in the douay Reigns Bible and the Aramaic Bible in plain English, where it says, 
but thou hast pierced the ears for me. The New Revised Standard reads, but you have given me an open ear. E.W. Bullinger comments on Exodus 21.6 by saying, bore his ear, hence a symbol of obedience and perpetual servitude. Compare Psalm 40 verse 6, Isaiah 48.8, Isaiah 50 verse 5. I don't have time to go over all of those, but listen to Isaiah 50 verse 5 on the bottom of the screen, which says, Adonai Yahweh has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. That's a, a text, not about a spiritual opening of an ear, but about my ear, that's how bored. You've made a hole. You've opened my ear, literally. It's a sign that I'm a servant to you, Adonai, Yahweh. I'm not rebellious. I won't turn back. The opening of the ear is equivalent to being submissive to Yahweh, which harkens back to Exodus 21.6, where the slave's ear was opened or bored through with a piercing tool. It's a sign of submissiveness. It's a sign of obedience. It's a sign of someone who wants to serve their master because the ear is where we what? Shema. Listen with the intent to obey. So Psalm 40 verse 6, I think is best seen as meaning you have given me an open ear by literally opening it with a piercing tool as a sign of my perpetual service to you to listen and be obedient to a good, good master. Matthew Henry, the old Puritan commentator in the 1600s, he writes in part on Exodus 21, 1 through 6, the obligation which the great Redeemer, he's talking about Christ, Yeshua, the obligation which the great Redeemer laid upon himself to prosecute the work for our salvation. For he says, Psalm 46, my ears hast thou opened, which seems to allude to this law. Talking about Exodus 21, 2 through 6. He loved his father. Yeshua loved his father and his captive spouse and the children that were given to him. That's us. And would not go out free from his undertaking, but engaged to serve in it forever. Isaiah 42, 1. Isaiah 42, 4. Where Yeshua is referred to as the Ebed of Yahweh. The servant, the slave of Yahweh. Yeshua was the greatest Hebrew manservant to ever live. He perfectly obeyed his master, Almighty Yahweh. Listen to this. If we downplay the slavery laws in the Bible, in the Torah, we are downplaying the person and the work of Yeshua. So we should not do that. Brothers and sisters, this is the Torah of Yahweh. This is part of the book of the law that shall not depart from your mouth. This is what we are studying and learning to practice. This is what Yeshua said, that if you practice and teach these commandments, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But if you don't, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So somebody asked me, they said, why do you want to teach on a text like this? Got a comment this week. Why would you teach on a text like that? Well, number one, it's part of the Torah. That's the only answer I even need to give. It's part of the Bible. Why would I not want to teach on a text like this? Why would I get to this text and say, we're going to skip over that text because it doesn't harmonize with what American culture is telling us today. I don't give a flying flip what America tells me to say or not to say. I serve one master. Almighty Yahweh. One master. Hallelujah. So it's in the Bible. It's part of Yahweh's law. That should be good enough. But I want you to realize that the law here teaches us. Listen. The law teaches us about proper relationships. How we should be kind to even the least of these. How we should give to the poor. 
how we should respect authority, how we should serve somebody who treats us well, how that family is important, and even how Yeshua models perfect servanthood through being a servant that saves us from our sins. Those seven things are taught in Exodus 21, 2 through 6. Why would I want to skip over it? Why would I not want to teach on that? His word is alive. All of this is found in these slavery laws that nobody wants to talk about because they're so worried about upsetting some man or woman and not as worried about pleasing the almighty creator of heaven and earth. Not, not Matthew Jansen, not me. I'm in it for keeps. I'm planning on going to the kingdom of heaven and I'm planning on being great there. So I've got to teach and to practice the commandments, whether people like it or not. This is amazing to me. As I was studying about this, it's amazing to me. Yahweh's word is alive. And this is not it. There's more to cover about this. And I'll do so in later lessons. For now, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall think on it day and night. Be careful to do what God tells you to do. So that you will have success. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. But stay on the narrow path. Be careful to do what God tells you to do. So that you will have good success.